Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the Chief Revenue Officer, oversees all advertising and marketing at one of the great companies that this country has ever produced, Oracle. Uh, I've had a chance to know Molly, not that well, Molly. I think we know each other sort of peripherally, um, but for many, many years and have followed your career. Uh, and we are thrilled to have you uh, here today. So welcome to Molly Spillman. Thank you so much. It's so great to be able to uh, to virtually hang out with you. We've been in this ran in the same circles for many years, as you said. So excited to have a little chat with you. Indeed. So Molly, I want to start by going back a little bit. And you started your career in one of the most interesting areas back then, one of the genres of the media that's been really challenged, and that's the magazine business. Um, so I'd love to start by going back. I know you were at People and you were at Better Homes, but I'd love to go back to that beginning part of your career and how you first got there and you know, when you were just uh, uh, just starting out, really. Um, so it's so interesting that you brought that up today because I just had breakfast with Karen Kovacs, who I worked with at People Magazine in 1990. And she ended up staying there and running the whole show. And so we were walking down memory lane and, um, and that was just such a special time at People, but also in the print industry. You know, People Magazine had just as many eyeballs as, as linear TV, um, but it was such a great place to learn about advertising and marketing and the power of content and great content and relevant content, timely content. And I think that really was a springboard for me going into digital because you could see once eyeballs and content were going online, advertisers were going to have to follow. And so when I was in the print industry and there was this move to digital, uh, so many of my print colleagues moved, migrated as well to digital and especially those who really understood the, the power of context and you know having the right ad targeted to the right person at the right time. And digital was just, you know, had such promise. And so the folks that moved over, it was just such a seamless transition for those who came from print versus other areas of the advertising and marketing space. So it seems like a lot of people who came out of that era sort of figured it out and made that transition and did really well. And, and Time Inc. in particular, I think, was a great farm system for talent. The genre did not do as well. And as we look back, you know, we can say in broad terms, radio has been given new digital energy, you know, with the whole rise of podcasting and, and et cetera. Outdoor got new energy with the rise of digital outdoor. The newspaper and the magazine industry pretty tough. When you reflect back on it, were there things that should have been done then that could have changed the course of the industry? Or was it just an inevitability? I think um, there are things. And you know what, nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, but so it's a really good question. I actually think that if we went back in time, and we switched the paradigm to digital first, 
and print second, there could have been, it, it could have been different. And I think that was kind of when you think back when AOL bought Time Warner, I mean, that was kind of, it was like too late then, but that was like, oh, wait, digital should come first. So I remember being at People Magazine when it was like, oh, we should create a website. And then it was like, well, well, we don't really know what we're doing because print's not going to go away. So let's create just a digital group that's going to, you know, I forget what Pathfinder or whatever it was and how Sports Illustrated and money and time and people and Entertainment Weekly and just put them over there and make sure that we have some content on there versus saying, okay, this is how people are going to consume content. And maybe they still want a physical piece of paper to bring with them, you know, and the sit in a doctor's office and read their People magazine or, or whatnot. But digital is going to come first. And so how do we, maybe we should have, maybe timing should have bought Facebook. Maybe, you know, there could have been acquisitions or focus more on the brands in a digital way and how you, you know, it's not just one way interactions don't just read a, an article because People Magazine, the audience was so interactive. If we had, I mean, I still remember these stats from when I was 22 years old, but we would write an article about a kindergarten kid trying to save dolphins. And one of my friends actually was in charge of opening all the letters. She worked in the mail department. Literally a week later, we would get a deluge of letters with people like sending a dollar or 25 cents because everybody was reading our magazine and saying like, I wanna donate. And this is before there was digital and email and Venmo and all those things. And so if you think about People Magazine in particular or Sports Illustrated and what Ross Levinson's now doing with Sports Illustrated, it's like there didn't need to be this dip to kind of try to come back. You know, Sports Illustrated, maybe it should have gone into sports books earlier, you know, who knows, but I think it could have been different. I really do. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting area. And I, I think we're a little worse off as that genre has really been challenged. And, you know, we were big magazine people growing up and, you know, you'd wait for the Monday, you know, I used to love in the heyday of New York magazine, you know, every week that would come and, and the intelligencer column and, and Sports Illustrated as a kid, I, I hope Ross can, you know, do something with it. I like him quite a bit, um, but it's not what it was. No, and I agree. And I think there's, I think that the younger generation, um, they, you know, they, they're very transient. They're not as loyal to content because it keeps changing. And, and so, and with social media, you're getting bits of content on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or, you know, my kids still like ESPN to get some of the sports stuff, but everything's so real time. And there's not like, they're not loyal to one um, content provider. And I think that's, you know, kind of a bummer because you don't have that trusted place where you're getting, you know, that speaks to you. And, and I think that's, you know, something that I, I still have brand media brands I'm loyal to and always will be, but I think younger generations don't have that. And maybe we, maybe we miss something um, in the media industry along the way. I don't know. That, that's absolutely an age thing. Cause I think I'm just a touch older than you, but I too am loyal, but younger people much more fleeting. Yeah. 
Exactly. No, no question. So, okay. Okay. Let's, let's get back to you now. So you sort of see where things are going and make your own transition uh, into what's next. And you had a great run at phase two at discovery and then end up in a pretty big role at a pretty young age at AOL. So let's, you know, let's go forward any way you want. You, you, you choose. Yeah. So I think it, it was an interesting journey. Um, given kind of the move to phase two media, which was a premium ad network in what we call the bubble days. And um, Richie Glassberg, who I know you know, assembled a great group of people to make that transition from various parts of the industry. And, you know, we still are best buds. We learned so much in that time. Um, and we learned about, I learned so much about digital and how advertising um, was had, had the potential to change with the advent of digital advertising and technology. And then when the bubble burst, you know, we were one of the casualties. And so like so many people, I was like, okay, maybe I should go back to something else. Maybe it's too early. Maybe digital advertising is too early, but I didn't want to go back to print because I really didn't see that as the future. So I went to discovery and I went, so I'd never worked in cable. And I really, I stayed there like maybe a year. And I said, you know what? I really do believe in digital. And these guys are so clueless. I was running all the upfronts and I was like, this is, this is crazy how people are buying advertising, how it's measured, how it's bought, sold, et cetera. And I need to go back to digital. So I went to advertising.com, which was then sold to AOL. And um, it was a performance advertising company. And that was, you know, people were like, what are you doing? Like everybody's laying people off. They just laid people off. And I said, I just believe it. And these guys have real tech. So that was pretty cool. And then get um, acquired by AOL and then end up running all of marketing and sales. And then um, the founder of advertising.com, Scott Ferber said, hey, you know, let's video is the next thing. So linear TV, you know, people want streaming everywhere. It's really early, but I this is going to be huge. And, you know, one of the smartest guys I ever met. So let's go do this. So we started a company called Title TV. We're trying to go after the consumer turned into videology, a video DSP. And um, so learned all about streaming and what that meant and, you know, lots of lots of complications um, in that part of the industry, but that was that was a great ride. And I ended up getting after that an opportunity to go to Yahoo and run all of their marketing with Ross for a period of time. And so there's, you know, the the theme is that ad advertising technology, hugely important and game changing, really misunderstood by Wall Street and others, but really is, you know, powers all of the, the industry and all of the content that's possible. And then Yahoo, you know, I was, I was there for three years and there were five CEOs in three years. Um, and Yahoo is one of those companies that, you know, it's epic, just had, still has so much brand equity, but just still hasn't found its place. And, and there's so many ex Yahoo people who we still just, you know, we bleed purple or whatever you want to say. Um, and still so much opportunity. It's just never, it's never kind of reclaimed its rightful place 
in the in the ecosystem. But that was kind of cool to be part of a, a little chapter. We touched on Time Inc. as a farm system of talent. Yahoo, arguably for the modern era, is the leading farm system of talent. There's no question. There's no question. We, we, we blew through a lot of ground. I want to go back a little bit. So you were engaged in looking at the future and video and streaming 20 years ago. Yep. Not that many people were there at that time. Uh, and the promise, you know, was talked about, but not a lot of people and not a lot of folks saw it coming. Reflecting on that, you were really there, Molly, at the very beginning of where everything ended up 20 years later. That's got to be interesting to reflect on. It's interesting. And it, it, um, it also, I think, complements or maybe is the learning from print because we were having the same conversation, Scott and I were having the same conversations with the Nat Geos of the world and CBS and People Magazine about the future of their content online. And so look what happened with print. Do you want, like, what's National Geographic gonna do when people aren't just tuning in to watch the Lions on Sunday night with their kids? What if you, what if you have to be always on? And how are you gonna embrace a, a new generation who's going to watch video on their phone or on their iPad. And, you know, how are you going to cat, you know, what are you going to do with all of the past videos? How can you curate that and create new experiences? And so I used my print background to try to paint this picture of the future. And you could see some of the companies that, that saw that opportunity and ones that didn't. And it was, it was really interesting to be there at the big beginning. The biggest challenge was there was so much content, but how do you move all of this video content to streaming? And, and how, do you, how do you store it? How do you categorize it? How do you measure it? How are you going to charge for it? You know, how do you market what your capabilities are? And, and there were a lot of technical challenges with placing ads, what's viewable, what should you skip, should you charge, being part of all that. You can see now, I mean, 20 years later, Peacock and all of these streaming services, it's, it took a long time. And, and now there's, I, I think the benefit for the consumer is, is tremendous because you can get free content, amazing premium content, you just have to watch ads or you have the opportunity to, to not have ads, but pay a monthly subscription and get all this crazy content and everybody's investing in content. And I think looking back in time, this is where Scott and I kind of said, this is what's gonna happen. I thought it would, hap would have happened faster, but I also think is, you, you know this too, in the TV industry, there's a lot of inertia because there's so much, so much money and the system worked so well for so long that everybody just wanted to hold on to that model. And, and now there's um, just so much change and people are ready for that change. And your breadth of experience on the sales side, on the marketing side, but also you've touched operations quite a bit. I would think knowing what's under the hood 
really helps you with everything else you're doing. It does help because you have to know how things work. And so, you know, if we go back to print and marketing and selling ads in a magazine, I didn't need to know how the printing press worked in Aurora, Illinois. I didn't, I didn't need to know who pushed the buttons. All I needed to know was this was the date you needed to get me your print creative so it can get in this issue. But now when you're talking about advertisers and formats and um, uh, you know timing, delivery, and then also ROI, you have to know how all of the workings, the inner workings happen. And, and it's also your job to communicate that to our clients, to both the agencies and the direct marketers. It's really important because you don't want them to have to know everything because it's really complicated, but when you can explain it, then it you can become more of a consultant than a salesperson. Very well said. It, it's so, such an interesting uh, set of experiences, and you can really see as we start to build sort of the Molly Spillman narrative where it comes from. And I think that foundation that we touched on, uh, whether it was planned or inadvertent, Molly, it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, people always ask me, they're like, how, you know, how should I orchestrate my career? And I'm like, you know, I look back and I, I, it looks pretty orchestrated, but it really wasn't. You know, what, what I did, the one thing I did was I always wanted to make a move where I was going to learn something different. And so, you know, when I, when the bubble burst and I left phase two media, I could have gone back to print, but I had done that for seven years or six years or whatever it was. And I was like, yeah, no, I want to learn something new. Never been in cable. Let's check out Discovery. What an amazing company with 12 amazing cable brands. Um, when I left Yahoo, I didn't just go to another, you know, media company. I said, I really don't understand much about in-app advertising. So I went to Millennial Media. I understand, I understand mobile, I understand advertising in mobile, but I didn't really understand the in-app space. And so I've always, what I've told people is, you know, for me, I've always wanted to learn more. And so now I can say, okay, I've had all of these leadership positions. I've been a CMO, a CEO, a COO, a CRO, Whatever it is, doesn't matter. I've been, you know, putting, you know, at People Magazine, stuffing envelopes with memos. You know, I've kind of, I've gone from the bottom up, but I've also been in video, in-app, you know, uh, premium content, ad network, et cetera, retargeting company. And so I've always wanted to learn something new and all of it just gives me such broad perspective on companies in my space when I'm talking to clients or internal people at Oracle now, I just feel like I have a lot of perspective and whatever I do next, whether it's within Oracle or someplace else, it'll be another adventure on learning something new. That's for sure. It's a great narrative. And one of your uh assets that people talk about, assets isn't really the right word. One of the things that people say about you, Molly, is that you're a great mentor and a great leader. But I would think along your pathway, you've had 
some great folks who have helped you. As you reflect back on that early time, who are some of the leaders, male or female, but in particular, uh, you become such a dynamic female leader and role model for so many in the industry. Were there particular folks who, as you reflect on, some great minds from your past, if you will, who really helped you along your journey? Yeah, I, I definitely, there were people who I worked um, for, and there's people that I just saw in the industry that I tried to emulate. So early in my career at People and more, she started out um, at Money and then um, Sports Illustrated. She's the one who created the swimsuit issue franchise. Then she came to People and you know rose up the ranks. And she was just such a strong person, but a wonderful person. I spent a lot of time with her. And so I used to look up to her and say, wow, you know, and that was in the 90s to have a female as the president of Sports Illustrated, you know, that was pretty badass, you know, and I, um, I really looked up to her. Then there were other people, you know, later on, Sheryl Sandberg is one who's still somebody I look up to and admire. Um, and then there's various other folks who I've worked with at Yahoo, Mickey Rosen and some others. And so I've had a I've had some really great female mentors and I've had some great male mentors as well. And one thing I, I also bring up and not to be you know negative, but there are also a lot of people, to be quite frank, that I looked up to and I said, I want to be the opposite of that person. Mm -hmm. So it's good to take all you know, the people you say, oh, you know, I can learn this and this and this from this person. But there are a lot of people in my career who I've looked at that I've said that have made me who I am now as a leader, because I've said, I do not want to be that person. I do not want to act that way. And so I learn from the positive reinforcement as well as the negative. Hey, that, that, that's life. And I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, often you learn uh, what you like by understanding very clearly what you don't. Exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't view that as negative at all. I, I think that's just very realistic. So you also had a great run at Critio, which is a terrific company. It's gone through a lot of iterations, but that must have been an interesting experience in a very different way. Yeah, that that was um, that was a pretty intense um, experience. It was an amazing experience. One of the things that I take away from that in, in terms of achievement wasn't you know, I took revenue from 600 million to 2 billion and, you know, we beat all sorts of records. Well, it's that when I started, it's very French company, um, male dominated and French company. And when I started there, people said, oh God, you know, they're going to chew you up and spit you out because you're American, you're female and you're running sales you know, and it's very tech heavy. So like our, I used to laugh and be like, I know everybody thinks our product sells itself, but it doesn't. And so, you know, I came in, I was like, oh, you know, I'm coming in in a hard place. And I was able over my five and a half years there to essentially be the right hand of the founder and CEO chairman and, and, and become super valuable and um, create relationships 
with all of those people who probably were like, I give her 50-50 coming in. And so we built a really amazing business and, um, and changed the culture to really become more of an international business. Our revenue was a third, a third, a third, America's, Euro, EMEA, and JPAC. Um, and so we needed not to be seen as a French company. And I think that really changed. And I'm, I haven't worked with her before, but Megan Clarkin, who's now the CEO, I couldn't be more impressed with what she's done with the company. A lot of headwinds and um, she's turned things, she's reinvented the company from the marketing standpoint, from the sales standpoint. And it's so great after working so hard there to get the company to continue to grow and then see her come in and take it to the next level. And that's pretty cool. I remember watching um, the Super Bowl and there's a Critio ad and I'm what is Critio doing on the Super Bowl? Um, but I was like, I worked there. I was there, it's cool. Um, and now, you know, they have a new CRO. Um, and I think, uh, I think there's gonna be more to come there, but that was, that was a, a very cool experience and just such a different environment. Company, yeah, they've been a great partner of ours through a lot of iterations. I remember when Greg was there and I think it was Kathleen Schneider in, in out of London. I really, I thought very highly of her. Exactly, yeah, she was amazing. As great team. Greg Coleman and the gang. Great team. So then the summer of 2019 rolls along and you get a phone call, an email, a telegram, something. Tell us about the journey to Oracle. Yeah, so I got a reach out from Oracle. And again, I had been at, at Critio for five and a half years. And I was at the point where, you know, I was, I was kind of itching to do something different. Nothing was wrong. I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe there is a next thing. And, um, and so there was a reach out from Oracle and I was like, oh, why, why would they want to talk to me? I had no clue um, what it was about. And so I started talking to my now boss, Rob Tarkov, who had been at Adobe a long time. He was CEO of Lithium. And I started putting it together. I was like, oh, Oracle Data Cloud, that's Moat, that's GrapeShot, that's DataLogix, that's BlueKai. What have they done with, you know, putting all these things together? Um, and then, you know, I thought that was interesting, but it did feel a little bit like going back to the future, like uh, all these ad tech things, like what am I going to learn new? And and Rob said, look, look, we have this vision here to bring, you know, marketing technology and advertising technology together. And I said, and so of course the light bulb went off back to my like learning um, desires. I was like, oh, I know ad tech. I know nothing about marketing technology. When I was CMO at Yahoo, of course I used it for email and all sorts of things, but I never sold it, never really knew much more than that. And so I was like, oh God, that's pretty cool. Especially when there's so much conversation about advertising and marketing coming together, mad tech. But I never, I thought it was all kind of just smoke and mirrors. Like what's really happening? I don't know, I don't see it. And so the more we talked about it, the more I got excited because Rob had never worked in the ad tech space. So he came from the MarTech space and I said, let's just, we're yin and yang. 
let's come together. You'll learn, I'll learn, and you seem like a great person. Never worked at a company as big as Oracle. And so, okay, that sounds good. And the funny part that I, I tell people is when I joined, it was super secret because I was a named officer at Critio. So they had to do all sorts of filing. So I really couldn't tell one person. And so when I joined and finally was able to tell people where I was going, not one person said, congrats. You know, like I went to Critio, yeah, they're like, congrats, that's a great role for you. Nobody said that. Everybody said, is that a good thing? Or like, why? We don't picture, like we picture oracles like a sea of men in khakis and blue blazers. You know, what, you don't, what, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you going there? And um, so then I would explain it and then they would go, oh, that's super cool. Congrats. But the first reaction was like, people are just questioning, what are you, what are you doing? So you touched on it, but I'd love to dig a little bit deeper because Oracle is sort of a, a mystery in some respects. And I think the work that your team is doing is demystifying that. And I want to get to Oracle Fusion Marketing, which I think is so interesting as you're bringing it all together. But you touched on it. It really is a, a business that's been built through acquisition and putting a lot of disparate pieces together. That's got to be interesting, meshing all the cultures, meshing all the technologies. That's a lot of work. It is. It, it's a lot of work. Um, but I think the, the key is really having a North Star. And so trying to communicate to all the um, disparate groups that are coming in through acquisition is to continually explain where we're going, why we matter, and how we're stronger together. So when I joined the data cloud side before the marketing part moved over, I used to call it um, the name tag syndrome. And what I meant by that was I would have, I would do a call uh, with, a, with a group of people and I would say, all right, everybody introduce themselves. I wanna talk about our Q1 plan. And it was, I literally felt like everybody had a name tag. People would say, oh, I'm Joe Smith and I came through the Grape Shot acquisition and I run XYZ. The next person would say, I'm Mary Brown and I came through the Moat acquisition. And I don't care where you came from, it had nothing to do with the topic, but everybody branded themselves. And I felt like you could go and you could tell in a meeting who was from what acquisition because there were kind of like tribes or just different ways of thinking about the market. And my toll, when I did an all hands, when I had been at the, in the business for about a month, I said, okay, nobody is going to wear a name tag anymore. You know what your name tag is? Oracle. And so I think everybody came here through an acquisition, which is the smartest thing Oracle ever did, but everybody's Oracle now. So I really don't want to hear where you came from because it, it's not relevant anymore. So this is what we're building towards and this is where we're going. And I think that's like the cultural part of acquisitions is the hardest. And that's where a lot of integrations fail because you don't understand how important the culture and the people are. Doesn't matter how great the products are, the tech, 
that is the hardest part of integration. So that's always where I try to focus. So you've got a big set of challenges there to build a culture where people are coming from many different places, uh, tribes. I like that. I like how you use that word. And then not too long after you begin, uh, the world gets a little wacky and you're charged with leading and building this global culture at a time when we're all in our you know, kitchens, living rooms and dens. Talk about reflecting on that experience the last give or take two years and how wonderful it must be now to be starting to reemerge from that and be able to actually be with your team you know, in the same room at the same time. Uh, so what I'm gonna say is kind of controversial, but those who know me know that I can go there, is um, it actually, outside of, of the tragedy of this pandemic and what it did to the world, it actually created an opportunity and there were a lot of benefits to me. And what I mean by that is when I started, Oracle was always a very geographically diverse business, my, all of it, but, also, but my group as well. And so it was when I started, it was very hard to be everywhere and create those connections because there were a lot of, uh, it was a very open you know, place in terms of being able to work from home or work remotely. There, there was no center. So the, a lot of the data logics people were in Colorado. A lot of the moat people were in New York. A lot of the grape shot leadership team was in London. And so there really wasn't a hub anywhere. And so it was very hard for me to create that culture when, and people were traveling all over the place. And so I, you know, I would go to all these various places, but we were on Zoom. It was always a Zoom culture anyway. So if I was in my office in New York, most of my calls were Zoom. There would be people in our conference room, but then there would be other various people on Zoom. And so what the, what the new situation did is it kind of democratized everybody so that it equaled, everybody was remote. And so everybody had to develop a relationship on Zoom and it didn't matter where you were. And so it became actually easier for me to connect with people on an equal level because I wasn't meeting anybody in person. And before I had met people and then you get that you know, personal connection because you could take them out to lunch or dinner. And then there were people who work from home in Canada and you never met those people and you would try to do it on Zoom. And so it actually just made it more equal. And now what's interesting is that I have these relationships with my leadership team, with broader teams. And I feel that connection because we've all had to get used to it for two years. And now I can't wait to see people in person, but I just met some folks that I had hired who report to me, I've never met in person and I've just met in person and it's great, but I don't feel, I don't, feel any closer. It's just interesting to meet people, you know, in person. But I think we've just learned that you can do it on video. And that makes people more open to taking on different responsibilities and being confident in their skills and what they're contributing, you know, um, 
being valuable without, you know, having to spend so much personal time with a leader or your boss or, or whatever. So I think it's actually been a, a really interesting learning, not moment, but two years. So I, I like how you use the word democratization because that's a very interesting and a different perspective. You are right. Your take on it is a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on one point that, that sticks in my craw and that's young people and mentoring. And um, we brought our people back. We're now give or take three days a week. And um, I think the serendipity of things that are not planned um, and for younger people in particular is so important to their growth. I'm gonna guess you agree with at least some of that. I agree with all of it. And I think um, it's, that, it, that is the, there's probably a couple others but that is the one that I think is the most important that we don't, we don't want to lose. I can't imagine starting at People Magazine without interacting with people and getting to know them and learn from them. And those conversations that happen when you're sitting around a brainstorming table with the rest of the marketing department or whatever it might be, that is so important. So one thing that I have um, done for my teams is in some cities, we've gotten rid of our leases and we're moving into WeWork um, buildings and whatnot because in New York, for example, we had an older building where there was many offices, which is great, but there wasn't that same kind of open place where you get everybody could sit and have lunch or you get coffee or a snack area. And so it really wasn't accomplishing anything. And we when we opened that up, the younger people didn't come back. They went in and said, okay, everybody's sitting in an office on Zooms. What's the difference? I might as well be in my apartment. And so we're actually leasing a whole new um, place in New York. And we're doing the same thing in our Denver office and some of the, the West Coast offices, because I think that is really important. And so for me, when I'm going to travel and I've told my leadership is that we need to make sure when we're meeting with clients and going to these cities that we go sit in some of those areas and have those ad hoc conversations. And it's not just, you know, leaders, it's everybody. And so I, I think that people aren't, at least in my organization, even the younger people aren't going to go back five days. They're going to go in um, in a hybrid manner, but when they go, they want to be in those open settings where they're seeing people, they're talking to people and there's culture. So we need to make sure the physical offices can stimulate those conversations and that feeling that is better than just being in your apartment. And because I don't know how like those younger people starting in their careers or they're a couple of years in are going to grow in the same way virtually than they would in person. So I thousand percent agree. Yeah, we are completely on the same page there. And I think I know a number, my daughter's 24 and works in the business and the number of her contemporaries who have started new jobs, you know, in their apartments. Um, And a lot of them think it's great. And I said, I know it's not as great as you think. You know, you don't, and I can't, you can't say this these days, but I'll say, you know, you don't really know what you're saying, but I believe, but I believe that. I, I totally, I couldn't agree more. And I've seen, you know, people kind of made do, 
people that we hired, if they were in New York and they were just starting, we didn't have an office, but some of them, you know, you find like that one person that ringleaders who's like, well, we can go out for drinks. So anybody want to just meet? And so it was interesting. Some of the social circles that were created with those people who said, okay, I'm, I'm okay with working from my apartment on zoom because the offices aren't open, but I want to meet these people. So like, let's go get coffee or let's go for a walk or let's go for a beer. And, and so people tried to make do outside of an office not being open. Yeah, no, it's a, a great evolution and really interesting. And years and years from now, there'll be many, many, many books and studies written about this era, I'm sure. So uh, one of the things that's been a hallmark of Oracle is ambition. And Larry Ellison is one of the most ambitious, successful people, a visionary uh, that this country's ever produced. And I love the ambition of what Oracle Fusion Marketing is about, to really create a unified system to cover all aspects of marketing. That's really ambitious. I'd love to get your take on how it's going, the launch, what was behind it, and how Oracle is really working to differentiate what you're doing in the space, um, B2B and CRM and that whole area, which is such a high growth, interesting area. Yeah, so Larry, um, Larry gets his ideas from all over the place. Um, but for this one in particular, it was using Oracle as the use case. So, you know, we spend a lot of money on marketing. We have huge sales teams and we sell our own marketing technology, which we use our own advertising technology, which we use. But he's like, there's gotta be a better way, a more like using technology to um, identify leads through our marketing efforts and have them more seamlessly and automatically delivered to our sales teams to follow up and create curated experiences for our prospects. Because right now we do an ad campaign and then we you know, get those email addresses or those web visits. And then that comes into a system and then goes into our CRM and then a salesperson says, oh, this person reached out. They're a warm lead. I'm going to reach out and send them an email. But like, what if we could automate that system? And what if we could better use the content that we know since we have a, a, our own content technology that can classify and create customized and relevant content for a particular prospect? What if we could do all that through AI and ML and our own systems to create this, what Larry called an engineered experience. And so if you're, you know, there's this classic disconnect, marketing says, I'm creating all these leads. How come you're not selling more? And then sales says, God, I can't hit my number. There's no pipeline. Marketing's not getting, all those leads are junk. And so that happens everywhere. It happens at Oracle. And so Larry just said, you know, there's gotta be a better way and so he tasked the teams of putting that all together so that um, it's our CRM, it's our content system, it's our marketing technology, and then it's also tied into advertising, 
So if you have a salesperson who is sending relevant curated content with a reach out to a prospect, well, let's also advertise to that person with an ad campaign through our ad tech and all of the distribution and all of the activation opportunities we have on DSPs and walled gardens, et cetera. So it really is the marketing technology and the sales technology all the way to the advertising technology and bringing these things together. So that was a proof of concept that we used for our own Oracle advertising and sales teams. And we saw, you know, like 200% increase in, you know, prospects, qualified prospects coming into our CRM and salespeople and the return on investment we're getting there. We just signed up three very big B2B businesses um, to do their own campaigns over the next six months. And then it'll become general availability this summer. But, you know, it's one of those things where Larry says, there's got to be a better way. And then you say like, well, okay, let's, let's eat our own dog food. Let's see if that's the case. And it is. And then you just make it so. And so it's pretty interesting. And when we're talking to our B2B customers, it's like such a simple idea, but a game-changing idea. And everybody nods their head. It doesn't mean that they're, they can embrace it because there's a lot of internal conversation and coordination that needs to happen. But it's those kinds of innovations that I came to Oracle to be part of. And, uh, and, and it's super, super exciting. And we have the, our, my whole team really jazzed about it because, you know, we always say it's not your, not your grandfather's Oracle. Cause there's some people who are just like, uh, eh, it's a big database company. You know, what are they really doing? That's innovative in our world. And we're doing a ton. And so it's getting everybody really, uh, jazzed to reinvent the Oracle brand, at least in the ad tech and MarTech ecosystems. Well, it sounds like there's going to be a whole new chapter here. And that's exciting. And, you know, as we've gone through our conversation, thinking about what you've done now, and I love that Oracle developed this by solving their own problem first. Uh, you know, I think Larry could not have picked. It's like if I'm starting a basketball team and I got a chance to have Michael Jordan as my first draft pick, they could not have done better than to have you leading this whole initiative. It's really a great evolution of your career. Wow. Well, that's so nice to hear. I don't know. Anybody wants to put me in the same sentence as Michael Jordan. That's really cool. Not to mention that I love to fish and he loves to fish. And so me and Michael Jordan, that's a good Eminem. There we go. So, so just to wrap, I have one good story for you. I know you like to play golf also. Yep. Many years ago, I was involved with the Steppenwolf Theater Company. It was founded by Gary Sinise and John Malkovich. It's one other. I always forget the third. And they had a benefit in California at a place called Porcupine Creek. And I got to play there a bunch. And Porcupine Creek then was owned by the Blixeth family, Tim and his wife, Idrith. They had gotten divorced. She ended up with the place. He was, there was some big controversy. It was a big real estate deal called the Yellowstone Club that went south years ago. And Tim, the husband, was involved with that. I don't know the whole story. But Larry Ellison owns that place now. And it is such a cool place. It's a private home with its own 18-hole course. Oh, 
<laughs> and the only way you could play there was if you were invited. Oh. And I got to play there a bunch of times. And Idrith, who ended up with Porcupine Creek in the divorce, she was dating. He was a B actor from Brooklyn, Jack Scalia, who was in a lot of movies and things. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. I've heard his name. You know, a solid, you know, tried and true, you know, a lot of mobster movies, things like that. And he and I became friendly and he invited me to play a few times there afterwards, not part of the Steppenwolf event. They had their own pro, Brett. He was the only one there. There was no one else, no other people. And as I am wont to do, when I hit a shot very wayward, you never had to worry about hitting into anyone because there was no one else there. There was nobody else there. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. But I'm 99% sure that Larry Ellison still owns it today. And it was a very special place. Well, maybe if I can make Fusion Marketing a blockbuster, you know, product, I'll get an invitation. That would be special. It was something, you know, the big giant doors that open leading to a long driveway, you know, sort of like Magnolia and Augusta in a lot of ways, only only with a uh, Indian Wells, you know, California desert feel, but yeah. a very noteworthy place. Well, after we get off this call, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> oh, spectacular. Well, Molly, thanks so much for doing this. This was an absolute joy and um, we'll continue to stay in touch with your team, Steve, and everybody else we've dealt with has been first rate. And I'm really glad we had a chance to do this. So thank you so much. Me too. Thank you so much. Great to catch up. So much great advertising week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.